0: Broadsheet radio
1: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Shared History where's the beef where is the beef you know not something I ask myself that often looking at history books I find that there's a lot of beef there is a lot of beef and I was just gonna you
0: know say where's the history but it's right here it's in front of us we're talking about it it's in your ears listeners right now I think most of history and the reason we talk about history is because a lot of people had beef you're right Mm mm-hmm
1: yeah A lot of I feel like most chapters in history books are uh, who especially American history books are who are we fighting now? who are we, <laughs> who are we beefing with now? or uh, I did this really cool thing
0: and you're taking credit for it, and you got the patent for it. so now now Indeed. I got beef with you.
1: Yeah now as as Taylor Swift says, now I've got problems of <laughs> them. You'd think that I was going to just st- use the name of that song instead of just an arbitrary lyric within the chorus. but That wouldn't be like you, Natalie. wouldn't be like me. <laughs> uh, we're going to dig right in. I'm super excited to introduce our guest today. Uh, we have an American historian and author who has written extensively about McCarthyism and American higher education. Cass, you know I love when we have an academic who is an academic in academics. It's my favorite. Uh, Her latest book, The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s, provides the first comprehensive analysis of American higher education's most turbulent decade, which I am shocked to hear isn't present day or when we were in university. Her previous books include No Ivory Tower, McCarthyism and the Universities, The Age of McCarthyism, A Brief History with Documents, Many are the crimes McCarthyism in America and the last soul of higher education, corporatization, the assault on academic freedom and the end of the university. I also want to add here that she has written a Chinese cookbook and that's my favorite thing that I've learned today. It's It's our esteemed guest, retired professor of history at Yeshiva University. It is Dr. Ellen Schrecker.
2: Ellen, welcome. Thank you so much, Natalie.
1: I have to get this out of the way at the top. What inspired you to write a Chinese
2: cookbook? Um, Oh, that's a long story, which I'll try to shorten. (laughs) Many, many years ago, back in the Dark Ages, uh, I lived in Taiwan for about a semester. My uh, then husband uh, was in Chinese history, and he was doing work there. And uh, I had two little children, and um, we hired somebody to help us in the house and with the kids. And she was a magnificent cook, great cook. And she, at the end of our stay, she wondered if we could get her a visa to come to the United States. This was really in the dark ages when such things were much more possible. She came and lived with us for about years, and we gave the most uh, desirable dinner parties. <laughs> I can kids. imagine. And then a friend of mine who was, at that time, the food editor of the New York Times said, write a cookbook. Here's my literary agent. So I followed Mrs. Jong around the kitchen for several months, sort of sticking a measuring spoon or a measuring cup between <laughs> her and the wok. <laughs> and wrote up a cookbook it's called Mrs. John's Ch- uh, Sichuan cookbook and it's sort of in print kind of but anyhow that's the book uh, she was from Sichuan and the food was magnificent and you know it, the recipes are pretty good it's become a kind of cult cookbook in the foodie world I love this so- I'm
1: going to need to get my hands on one of those uh huh uh what is what's your favorite what's your favorite dish from the
2: cookbook or just your favorite dish in chinese cuisine in oh general my gosh, favorite dish well i really like i make something that is never made in a restaurant it's called da. it's little sort of dumplings and cabbage and pork it's a kind of stew type thing and uh it's such a peasant dish such a sort of everyday comfort food that it to my knowledge restaurants don't make it but it's pretty easy it's fun and um we have it a lot chinese comfort food
1: i love that's it. amazing great listeners now that you're all very hungry uh, <laughs> i'm not sorry uh, we can we can talk about history although we did recently do an episode about sort of the americanization of chinese food uh and the history kind of in that cast casted a, did uh uh that is her topic in a in a recent episode um so i couldn't i couldn't resist um we didn't study history we did not continue to pursue studying history in in higher ed and i am always fascinated by folks who did who like were like this is the hill that i will die on uh so what's obviously we love if i if i made you choose an area of history outside of your expertise in mccarthyism and in the history of education uh where what else do you in history is like your favorite time period to study
2: well the thing is i taught at a school that had um when i first was got there one american historian So I taught everything, literally everything. I taught Western Civ. I taught all the survey courses. I taught women's history. I taught black history. I taught colonial history. I taught the history of the Vietnam War. I taught the history of the 60s. I mean, I taught everything. And um, it was wonderful. It was like, Okay, now what do I want to learn about this semester? Yeah, And uh, so I don't really have something I want to teach about. I mean, if I were going back into a classroom now, I would definitely uh, want to be uh, teaching something in black history because the recent books in that field, the recent scholarship, is just blossomed and it's fascinating. So you learn a new thing every day. Um, so anyhow, it really varies. I mean, maybe I should start on environmental history now. Wow, uh, that's a topic to, to tackle right now, for sure. Exactly. So, you know, there's, I mean, I think the main thing is that I've always loved history. And so um, that's what I'd rather do than anything else. I mean, it was very strange. The other day I was working on something and I thought, you know, this is really what I love to do. This is my hobby. I so, love it. The
1: description that you gave of like, of getting to getting to sink your teeth into and learn and teach something new basically every semester uh, is kind of exactly why Cass and I love and started this podcast is that we just get to be like, what, what tickles my fancy today, I deal with that in my uh, in my, my other professional life as well. Uh, I work as a copywriter. Natalie, you have a job outside of this. I do. It turns out, I have several. <laughs> uh, but we always joke. We always joke that uh, when you're writing when you're writing copy for for other brands and businesses and industries, I just become uh, I become a pretend expert in a lot of things. So, and also for improv cast, you find that you just know a lot of you know a lot a little bit about a lot of things because you need to have like a certain depth of reference level. But sometimes like one of those tasty morsels and you're like i'm gonna dig deeper
0: yeah i love because yeah improv someone will throw out a suggestion and you're like i don't know what that is i've heard one thing about it let's expand upon it and i love when you're on stage with someone and you know they know a lot about it so you're just like lobbing up gimmies for
1: them making them look good usually natalie uh you're you excel at making me look good let's I don't do the same for you as much. Is that why you brought me on the podcast? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're my duff. Alan, uh, <laughs> uh, we like to explore our recent discoveries in history and, you know, plant a flag and claim them as our own. Is there something that you've discovered recently that, that you're not, you are not, you are now the pioneer of, this is your discovery. <laughs> Okay. we're claiming it for you
2: okay well then i will tell you i mean my little discovery is that i now know how to make a hyperlink and that for somebody in my age group is amazing <laughs> anyhow, my other
1: big dis- doc- dr schrecker is 25 years old
2: Let's yes be- no <laughs> 38 uh anyhow <laughs> uh what I recently discovered is that, because I'm sort of thinking, what am I going to do next? I finished my book about the 60s. I know I will continue to be asked questions about the 60s. And the 60s will not leave me, just as McCarthyism hasn't left me. But I wanted to look at something else. And um, I got very interested in a man named Lewis Powell who is not a household name, but he was a while ago. He was a Supreme Court justice in the 70s, 80s, and so on. And he was also the author of a document known as the Powell Memo. And a friend of his who was the um, head of the Education Committee of the uh, National Chamber of Commerce, which is the biggest business group in the United States, Uh, wanted Powell's views on higher education and so Powell composed a memo that he sent around explaining that, and this was in 1971, uh, just in the middle of incredible turbulence on American campuses that I do write about in my book, and he um, said, well we've got to get rid of the lefties. The lefties have to go, they're Uh, Making students hate business. So we have to create more business friendly uh, political atmosphere. We have to fire left wing professors. We have to create think tanks that will provide uh, business friendly information, things like that. And lo and behold, uh, rich businessmen gave a lot of money to all the things he suggested, and it brought us to the present in many respects. So I'm looking at this gentleman with whom I, uh, quite frankly, don't agree, and, and discovering interesting things about his background, such as the fact that he was one of the lawyers who defended segregation, back in the early 1950s. And also, he, um, if you are up on your um, constitutional history of higher education, which I'm sure you, everybody listening is, uh, he was the author of the famous Backey decision in uh when was it it's sometime in the 80s i think and that no 78 maybe that said that um people were um suing universities for giving uh advantages uh what we used to call uh, affirmative action uh for african americans and other underrepresented minorities and um what powell wrote was well we can't uh, use race uh, in and of itself as a reason to bring in more black teachers or more black students, but we can do it because of div- we want to create diversity. And so diversity has been a catchword ever since within higher education. Thank you, Lewis Powell. <laughs> and then, Finally, he also had made a decision with regard to my own university. It was before I went there in which he said that, um, professors could not join labor unions. Why? Because we were managers. Well, that was news to many of us. We didn't think we were managers. We didn't set our own, um, you know, schedules or anything like that. Um, but anyhow, uh, We were managers and could not uh, have unions, and that was rather annoying as well. So anyhow, uh, my discovery was that he had been um, a great defender of uh, segregation. Luckily, he lost.
1: I I thought that that sentence was gonna go as my discovery was that he was a bit of a dick.
2: many white men in that era were (laughs) and still are Uh, you're (laughs) cool
1: i want to point out that i i double checked your date for you and i love that you were just like yeah the backy decision no it was 1978 it was in fact 1978 so uh i also love that your that your discovery is still history related i like the idea that you are you are retired now and but very much not retired as you are writing books and digging into a new topic never you can never retire from a love of history is what i'm taking away
2: right well i used to see my teaching which i liked a lot as my day job anyhow
1: let's i'm super excited to to dig into the topic that you have brought for us today partially because i did truly read the title of your book uh, when the email came across, I said, The Lost Promise, American Universities. Before I got to the, in the 1960s, I kind kind of assumed that we were talking about the lost promise of higher education sort of now, based on my experiences in, in higher ed. I want to point out the fact that your book, the lost soul of higher education corporatization, the assault on academic freedom and the end of the university was published when Cass and I were in college. (laughs) Uh, So a big relate from the, from the two of us from, I feel like our personal decision, a friend literally sent me a tweet this morning that just said a group of millennials is called a debt. And I <laughs> laughed. It's not a gaggle of millennials, it's a bet of millennials.
0: Oh my gosh, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. That's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> so I have made immediate assumptions about the time period that we were talking about, but we're going back to the nineteen sixties. And why don't you why don't you take it from here? Like explain okay. explain to us where we are. Get in the history machine. Okay where we are and what we're doing.
2: Okay, well, let me explain a little bit about the background of this book. Because um, as I was working on it, I kind of realized, and I think somebody, had, maybe it was my editor, said, well, you know, this is the uh, vo- second volume of your trilogy. And what if- Were you was, aware that you had a trilogy? <laughs> totally unaware that I but what happened was i started i started out originally in european diplomatic history okay i wrote what i consider one of the most boring phd theses ever in uh it was about the French debt to the united states after the first world war okay that's just a given <laughs> uh, and so um i didn't want to go on in european diplomatic history anymore it was really, it was not where my head was. So, I took off and I got a job teaching freshman composition. I was at Harvard uh, and I uh, taught this for a while and you could teach a little mini seminar on something that interested you. So, I decided I would teach a course on the 50s because that's when I grew up and I started teaching about the 50s and I realized there's no book on McCarthyism. Well, it was a big deal. I knew people who had been affected by it. Uh, So I decided, I kept looking and looking and looking, and finally I decided, okay, I'm not really, I don't have a regular academic job, I'm teaching freshman composition, uh, not in my field, so I will write the book. And then people said to me, but you know, that's just too big a topic, narrow it down. So I narrowed it down to I thought I'll do a city or I'll do an institution. So I did higher ed because that's what I knew. That's where I was. So I my first real book, aside from the pathetic thesis, uh, was um, about McCarthyism in the universities, in which the universities are claiming in this period, oh, we're doing, uh, we're preserving academic freedom. And they were not. They were firing people for political reasons. So um, then I uh, did more. I finally did the big book on McCarthyism that I had started out with. And then um, I got really interested in higher education. And I did this other book, The Lost Soul of Higher Education, about uh, what higher education was like at that moment in about 19, uh, sort of the early. 21st century, it is. Um, You know, being a historian, I still sometimes forget and date my checks, 19-something or other. (laughs) (laughs) And so then, uh, I uh, did teach a course on the 60s, just for fun, because I wanted to go through that stuff, and discovered, again, there was no book on what was happening in the universities. There were books about individual schools There were books about the anti-war movement, there were lots of excellent books about black students, black studies, uh, black power on campus, but there was no book that put everything together, the anti-war movement, the student, and so that's what I decided to do. And that's how this current book came, uh, came into being. And the main discovery of this book. I knew there were little pieces that I knew a lot about. But the main discovery was that all of what had happened that was so turbulent was not just because there was an anti war movement and a uh, civil rights movement and black power movement and a lot of social ferment and political ferment going on that definitely uh, occurred on American campuses, but also that American higher education was expanding enormously. That in the aftermath of the Second World War, there was a move to create a nationwide system of uh, public higher education that would be accessible to anybody who wanted it and who could take advantage of it. And that this would sort of open up opportunity within American society. And so that's the promise of the lost promise that in fact, it could be free. Uh, college education in New York city, for example, was completely free Uh, in some of the, uh, in California, in the uh, they didn't charge tuition until uh, much later. Uh, So uh, what you had was this explosion of higher education in the 1960s, coming on top of a previously rather elite set of institutions. And there was a lot of tension between the sort of traditional university, the traditional ways of doing things, and its traditional culture, which wasn't As competitive and research-oriented as it is today. Um, There was no ranking of the top, no US News and World Report uh, Mm -hmm. ranking of higher education institutions uh, in the earlier period. Um, So you had uh, these two cultures because new kinds of students are coming in, new kinds of professors are coming in, younger, more research-oriented, many of them from um, themselves uh, having been treated, uh, many of them Jews who had been barred from a lot of institutions because of anti-Semitism before the war, then coming onto campus, uh, you have a much more combustible population within higher education. Anyhow, and there would have been conflicts even without a Vietnam War and even without a, a major civil rights struggle
1: because at the at the bare minimum for the traditional student and scholar at that point, it's almost it's like an invasion of your of your turf of your right, right. as a more uh affluent individual whose like father has a college education, maybe whose father's father like yeah donated to the university and now has their
0: name on a building
1: yeah uh and now these now these plebes are uh are running about your campus that is it's interesting to think about the years that there may have been knowing that there's a lot of academic uh academics who came to the united states and who taught in the united states who were immigrants and were received education outside of the us but yeah. What, something that you just said that I guess I didn't think about was that it wasn't just a new generation and crop and all these new perspectives uh, of students but also of, of faculty and I wonder what those almost this isn't the topic that you brought here today but I'm thinking to myself about that kind of gap between when welcoming welcoming a more diverse spectrum of students and then those students becoming educated and qualified to teach, and so that gap, those couple of years where you n- know that those students had no one who maybe looked or thought like they did in yeah. seats of of uh, of teaching or of seats of power at the university, for a lot of folks they still feel that way, but I just a food for, um, a nugget a nugget of thought that I was that I attached to is this, wow, there was probably like three, four years where you could be a, a student, the first in your family to, to go to college, and there is no one teaching with your perspective.
2: Or how about with your gender? Oh, fair point. Uh, but what's interesting is that um, academics up until the 60s, students really didn't care very much about You've probably heard the term Gentleman's Sea. Yeah. And uh, it was, um, you know, now there's great inflation. There there are a whole bunch of wonderful inventions (laughs) that came about because of the 60s.
1: (laughs) We love to Um, see it.
2: So, you know, it was a different culture. And uh, what really happened in the 60s was a kind of push throughout all of American society to democratize, to bring in excluded groups. And this at many universities uh, turned into something rather explosive, especially uh, under the impetus of the civil rights movement and uh, the attempt to uh, open up universities to previously underserved uh, groups and individuals. And the universities simply weren't ready for them, and this became a major source of conflict on a number of campuses, and I think it's a problem to this day, may I say.
0: Let's hang out. I'm Ellie and I'm Lee and we're the co-hosts of Les Hangout a show about LGBTQ representation in the media because representation matters come hang out with us to talk about all of the characters that should have been gay Mulan, Ocean's 8, Harry Potter, Frozen, Faberry, Coyote Ugly because every movie or TV show would be better if it was gay or play our Les Central's drinking games for lesbian movies with your girlfriend, your wife, or the girl you just met on that lesbian dating app or that super cute You've been trying to give your number two for months. Just write it on the receipt already.
2: Listen to us interview your favorite LGBTQ actors and creators like Alison Stoner.
0: The tricky thing about having a platform is you're constantly choosing between protecting your own privacy, which ultimately protects your loved ones,
2: or opening up to the world in the hopes of inspiring or affecting a mass amount of people on a topic.
0: Elise Bauman from Carmilla. It just reminds me of like every time a queer woman, woman becomes single, there's like this high pitched <laughs> siren that goes out that like only other queer women can hear and they're like, What was that? <laughs> like, did I did I just hear the bat signal? <laughs> Is a queer
1: woman single again? <laughs> Ashley Perez from BuzzFeed Violet. Clearly Grace is gay. She shows up wearing a tank top and with that also haircut. she shows up naked. I would like to say that in the beginning she's butt naked and then she punches a dude and steals his clothes and looks better in those clothes than he does. <laughs>
0: she like okay. puts she's her like, foot by top, his yes.
1: boot and she's like, this
2: will be gay <laughs> enough.
0: Um, and Ariella Barrera from Runaways and One Day at a
2: Time. In real life, like gay people find each other.
0: <laughs> yes. I've never in my <laughs> life
2: in met a gay person who is only friends with straight people. Like and then they date the old. Any other gay people they know like no at this point i feel like it's so rare when i meet a truly straight person <laughs> so binge on let's hang out wherever you listen to podcasts and hang out with us every
0: monday for your weekly lgbtq fix i'm ellie and i'm lee and let's, let's hang out
2: hang again soon out. let's hang out, 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 out
1: in your in your book in addition to new new voices and perspectives on campus and that shaking up curricula as well as just social politics and existing. Uh you you talk about how and I didn't I guess it didn't occur to me that in the United States no one really knew anything about Vietnam before the Vietnam War. Like there wasn't history that people people weren't studying that part of the world can you talk a bit about that
2: oh yeah that that was kind of amazing um as the Vietnam War ramped up which you know began in the late 50s really uh, and it was originally a colonial rebellion and then a civil war um, nope Vietnam had been part of what had been called French Indochina and it was a French colony, and so Americans didn't study it. Uh, if you went to Vietnam, you had to communicate. You had to be able to speak French. Uh, and so, uh, to my knowledge, there were, Vietnamese language was not taught in the United States. It may have been taught in the, to the military in very specialized language schools, but not otherwise. And. Um, Americans simply didn't know anything. There were no academics really, except for a handful of Southeast Asian specialists who uh, knew anything about Vietnam. And so when the war ramps up in the uh, beginning of the 1960s, and the United States government under Kennedy, first under Eisenhower, then under Kennedy, Uh, and then finally under Johnson, uh, continues to pour more and more troops and quote-unquote advisors into this uh, unknown country. Um, uh, People just, you know, sometimes it made it onto the front pages, but nobody really understood the background. And so when all of a sudden Johnson, who had been running in the 1964 election, as a dove, as somebody who was not going to uh, bluster and wave uh, nuclear weapons around, but was considered at that time the peace candidate, Mm -hmm. suddenly starts bombing Vietnam uh, and sending troops into Vietnam in the spring of 1965. Uh, There's nobody there who knows enough, nobody out in the academic community in particular, who knows enough about what's going on. So all of a sudden, a group of academics here and there, but a especially important group at the University of Michigan, decide that they are going to protest. There had been protests earlier against what the United States had been doing, sending troops, sending advisors. People were being killed in Vietnam before the major escalation of 1965. And um, there had been protests, mainly uh, sort of letters to the editor, petitions that would run in uh, a left-wing newspaper or something, but nothing uh, really divisive or very uh, important in any way. Not, uh, and then um, these uh, professors, mainly junior faculty members, at the University of Michigan, decide they're going to do something a little more dramatic. They're not going to send a statement to the student newspaper. They're going to cancel their classes. They're going to call a moratorium. At that point, there's a lot of opposition. There's opposition from the president of the university who says that is not what they're supposed to be doing. They can't cancel their classes. Uh, There is opposition from the governor of uh, Michigan the father of uh, the former presidential candidate, Mitt Romney. Uh, There is uh, an opposition from the Michigan State Legislature. Uh, So these guys in Michigan decide, okay, we're not going to disrupt our classes. What we're going to do is have a teaching. And they invented the term, which was going to be starting late, in the day after the classes had ended. So they're not interrupting their teaching schedule. They're not uh, in any way affecting the university. They're just having these um, lectures, series of panels and lectures late at night. Uh, And as they said, we're not going on strike against the university. We're going on strike against sleep. And they then contacted all their other colleagues and friends around the country, and this movement spread. And it was what one historian has called the pedagogic phase of the anti-war movement. It was the moment at which the American people, first the students (coughs) and fellow faculty members on American campuses, and then people much everywhere else, uh, were taught what was wrong with the war in Vietnam. They were given the historical background, of course, because who knew that it had been a French colony for 100 years and that they had been fighting for their independence ever since, and that it wasn't a drive by international communism to spread uh you know, the evil totalitarian communism around the world, but mainly a nationalist revolution, just like our own, uh, to um, become an independent country. And so that was what happened in the 60s and was one of the main contributions of American academics to American politics. They, in a sense, jump-started the Vietnam War, anti-war movement during the Vietnam war. It's very important. And it's not very well known that this opposition began on university campuses.
0: It's interesting you say that because when I think of the anti-war movement, I think of maybe on college campuses, but students and students who are being maybe affected by the draft. And so they're not okay with that or, um, I don't think of it as educators and historians who are like, like, there's clearly political conflict. Let's learn about the history of it and why it's going on. And it's, you're right. People don't know about the impetus. They just think of the younger generations. Like, I don't wanna go to war. Why are you gonna make me go to war?
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: it, it's interesting to hear that academia was where that, and it makes sense,
2: was where that kind of took off. Of course, you know, because uh, it wasn't just that they were going to war. Nobody objected to going to fight against Hitler, say. Mm. But the fact was that this was an unjust war that uh, the United States is fighting on behalf of, you know, its own imperialist principles, I guess you'd have to say and not for the Vietnamese people. And people
0: weren't taught about Vietnam then, and I feel like we're really not taught about it now, you know? <clears throat> it's it's a blip in our general American history classes in high school and in middle school. Of, And then the Vietnam war, war happened, and a lot of people didn't like it, and let's move on to the next thing. And we're still not getting a lot of that history because it doesn't maybe look make
2: American history look good. Well, exactly. And, (laughs) just uh, you know, we are currently in the middle of a great, uh, massive campaign against teaching American history correctly, as um, many historians and other academics are seeing today. And um, it's a campaign, I guess, that will never end.
0: As an academic, does that scare you? I mean, first of all, you said before we started recording, like history is not just your job; it was your, it's still your hobby. So you're clearly passionate about it. You're passionate about um, the study of history, but also the teaching of history, and yeah, especially studying McCarthyism and shutting down people's free speech. That it's it never went away, but it feels almost like it's ramping up in a very extreme way not just in higher education but in all levels exactly
2: yeah it's uh become you know driven by this uh what is it you know fake news and mystification on the part uh, of um people on the right especially within the republican party who are waging what we call the culture wars against the teaching of American history, especially the teaching about the role of racism in American history. Because one of the things that I talk about in my book, in fact, is the way in which the whole field of African American history Uh, which had never disappeared, but was only being taught in the historically black colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. The way that whole field begins to grow and uh, and there's pushback against it. I mean, one of the things uh, we're talking about the conflict between say traditional uh, professors and new younger ones, whether they're white or black, um, is that the traditional scholars didn't think that black history or women's history or his, you know, history of other kinds of minority groups like, uh, indigenous people, uh, was, um, real history, you know, real history or real literature. You know, there's a similar struggle within English departments, you know, what do you mean we should be teaching Toni Morrison? Well, you know i was an english major
0: (laughs) and any sort of african-american or queer literature or anything it was just like a fun elective you could take you know like it doesn't really matter or count in you know english literature but it's something quirky and interesting you could take and it was always very much kind of billed as that which was frustrating or right. it was, or it was okay.
1: one book on the reading list for for your like literature class. There was one, like, okay, we'll read *Beloved*. Now back to a separate. Book. Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So that this, this
2: really changed a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Cass,
1: we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. We're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts.
0: Okay. Oh, tasty facts! Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1516. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention.
1: They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about
0: their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiarycom
1: I, I guess I'm curious. So this is sort of the dawn of... And it's really interesting to me hearing kind of this explained and given context because I my brain could never understand the rights the the right-wing anti-higher ed idea because part of me was like okay but like we have to love higher ed think about like the good old days the good old boys at, at yale and and harvard and thinking of like the the very white male affluent white male pretty aligned probably with with uh, right-wing politics, history of a lot of institutions, a lot of higher ed institutions. My brain could never make that mental leap to today, and sort of the anti-higher ed idea taken uh, taken on in the right wing, and it makes so much more sense now. Thinking about thinking about it as Cass and I talk about this periodically with things of like those institute it was we took the toy away from from the traditional academics we took we took their toy away one and two in the 60s the idea of teaching americans students and then letting that kind of spread across the general population teaching americans one Why we're even in Vietnam? Because the government wasn't giving any adequate explanation of that, and two, like historically, what was going on in that side of the world, and three, why the war in American war in Vietnam was wrong. And I bet, and it's like, okay, now it makes sense because the government had probably been like, stop telling them
2: this, like, shh, of course, of course, don't tell them our secrets. And, of course, the FBI was very busy. It had been very busy chasing, quote-unquote, communists in the 40s and 50s. And it uh, assumes that um, the FBI is a whole nother story. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, but, it is. you know, it ramps up its uh, anti-radical forces and uh, actually... Uh, I was going to write a whole book on political repression in America. And my chapter on the 60s was just going to be about the how the FBI and other uh, police forces uh, actually use violence against the Black Panthers. You know? mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Natalie, it's interesting you use the analogy of taking the toy away, because we're seeing this, I mean, any time people diversify bring minority groups in when we talk about equality or equity we didn't take their toy away we just gave another toy to a disenfranchised group and you know that's what people you know people have difficulty with affirmative action or or any sort of diversifying bringing in new groups Nothing's being taken away from you. We're just giving everyone the opportunity to play. And it's so frustrating to see people feeling like I'm the only one who gets to do this thing.
1: Yeah. You get to keep your little shovel in your bucket. We've just made the sandbox bigger. So that there are <laughs> people in it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So and of course the sandbox was getting bigger. I mean, that's the other thing. So that um you know, a lot of what we see today, certainly in higher education, these, you know, terrible state laws that forbid teaching the uh, critical race theory or uh, teaching about, quote-unquote, divisive issues um, or using words like social justice. Do you believe that... You know, those dirty words. Equity, like, <laughs> I mean, there was a Wisconsin legislature who actually had a list of words that he knew were um really bad and shouldn't be used um, but anyhow uh what we're what we're seeing today and what is sort of one of the, ma- the main theme of my book is that a lot of the uh what I would say delegitimation in the public eye of higher education uh, began as a backlash against the move to democratize American higher education, democratize education in general, uh, provide more resources, uh, uh, allow for different historical players to be part of the American story. And also, the other thing is, I mean, I have to admit that a lot of what um, the students in the 60s were doing was um, kind of nasty. You know they broke windows, they would disrupt the class. I, I sometimes wonder if I had been teaching on a campus where there was a lot of disruption and a group of black kids walk, who want to have uh, additional black teachers, which was such a major demand and so important, and as yet it's just beginning to be implemented. Um, if they had ran into my class and said, We're shutting this down, how would I have responded? You know, that mm-hmm. they, there was um, incivility, let mm-hmm. us say. There was disruption. Uh, and of course, the media immediately gloams on to the most sensationalized um, episodes they can find, the most sensational incidents mm-hmm. they can find, so that you know, we don't talk about because we don't know about, we don't have the sources really saying, okay, today, you know, 7,000 people at the University of, I don't know, um, Illinois uh, marched uh, to the president's office and showed signs saying, uh, get rid of the draft and then march back home quietly. Mm-hmm. You know, so what we're not seeing mm-hmm. is the fact that almost Everything that happened was nonviolent, was peaceful, was justified. That um, you because know, those people... stories
1: don't sell papers.
2: Exactly, and a lot of things uh, just fell by the wayside. Like um, I discovered a fact that mo- the largest number of protests during the nineteen sixties on American campuses was it uh, involved dress codes really oh gosh i mean you had to wear men had to wear they were called men of course had to wear uh you know jackets and ties business attire Mm -hmm. women had to wear skirts it really was another era and you know these were part of the protests too yeah well and normally when someone
0: protests it's because they've been disenfranchised and if you're a disenfranchised group especially like we weren't learning about it you know there were no classes talking about you know african-american struggles because there are only white people who only cared about that or or gender discrimination so you see a bunch of ladies burning their bras and you're like, what are you doing? But you don't have the background to know why they got to that point, you know? So all you're seeing is these rabble rousers. And if you don't have context to that, you're like, they're just being disruptive just to be disruptive. And now that we have more people talking about why they got to that point, then it makes more sense. Then you look back and you're like, what would i have done na- knowing now how would i react right. and then it puts everything in a different perspective in a different context well, and so, if and,
1: you're, yeah. if it's also interesting like i i hear about i think about those protests and i think about also all of the people who are maybe of like the generation before who are like okay quiet down you youth like we, I made it through, like that, that idea, that reductive idea of I survived this thing or I put up with this thing and it was fine and I had to go through it. So therefore, as a, as a rite of passage to adulthood or whatever, you also have to go through this exact same thing. Like the idea that it's the way that things have always been. We, we hear that conversation all the time whenever people talk about forgiving Uh, student debt now Mm -hmm. that everyone's like, well, I paid off my loans or I made it, I miraculously made it through college without debt. So why should we forgive the debt? I didn't get any, like I already paid that. I already lost that money. I paid it off. Why would we want to like, if we forgive that, then it's like, do I get that money back? No, the idea isn't and it didn't send you into turmoil, And even if it did, and you made it out on the other end. Congratulations. You're very fortunate and lucky. Why would you? Why not throw a rope ladder down and help the next generation up? or Or help people sure. who are in school with you up rather than just being like, Well, I survived. See if you can.
2: Well, a lot of this, again, goes back to the 60s, goes back to what was a huge backlash against universities, and especially that backlash uh, resulted in much less funding. In other words, We angered the donors. (laughs) Well, not just the donors, it's the state legislatures. Okay began pulling back immediately in the 1960s. The, the politician who was most helped by the backlash against universities, against what was perceived as students out of control, uh, was Ronald Reagan. He got his start at, and beca- his first elected office was governor of California And he ran against the Berkeley Free Speech Movement of 1964, in which a group of students, by the end of this free speech movement, most students got involved because the uh, university was uh, incredibly repressive in not letting them uh, express themselves politically on campus. And um, they were fighting for free speech. Well, you know. That seems to be something that most people support, you would think. But uh, there was a lot of opposition. And um, Reagan took advantage of it. And when he becomes uh, governor in, after the election of 1967, his first action is to fire the president of the University of California. And at the same time, The California State Legislature, which is um, funding the university, specifically refuses to fund state, it's funding all state uh, employees, except professors at the University of California system and the California State University system. So what has happened is that the states have withdrawn uh their support their financial support from universities and who's picked it up the students who have to pay ever-rising tuitions right Mm -hmm. as simple as that on salaries that have not risen much
0: (laughs)
1: since wage that has also not risen
2: (laughs) exactly so you know what you're seeing is a redistribution of wealth upward Mm. Uh, otherwise known as inequality which we're all living with and which is hurting everybody Mm -hmm.
0: i don't know trickle up economics works wait a minute that's not how that
2: goes
0: (laughs) 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 natalie there comes a time in every episode where i need to talk to you about iowa
1: wait is this a new segment
0: No, it's an ad for our sponsor, Raygun, who I love for being a wonderful business and for providing me with a regular excuse to bring up Iowa. As if you needed one. (laughs) Right. Raygun is the greatest store in the universe, hands down.
1: They're headquartered in the greatest state in the universe. Okay, okay. They also have other locations, including one in the best city in the universe, Chicago.
0: True. I guess you could say Raygun brings us together. Raygun kind of brings everyone together. True again. From home goods and paper products to their signature apparel, Raygun is all about good vibes, great laughs, and
1: kind of just not being a shitty person. Yup. And they regularly collaborate with charities and special causes on special runs of products. And 15 to 30% of their net profits go to a variety of nonprofit organizations every year
0: and they sponsor
1: this really dope history podcast i love right so don't be a shitty person <laughs> check them out at their stores across the midwest or online at raygunsite.com use promo code share you later to save on your next order dr schrecker i know i decided i wanted to call you dr schrecker again it makes okay. me feel important uh ellen is there a nugget from your most recent book that when you learned it you had an aha moment or like a favorite kind of aha moment because it sounds like there were a lot even though you you lived and were on campuses
2: through a lot of this exactly it was amazing how much and i was all, you know i was either a, fac- a graduate student an undergraduate a uh, faculty wife then a adjunct for a long time then finally a regular professor, but not until much later. So um, yeah, I had I was there then, and what I uh, learned I think was how interconnected uh, these issues are. You know, for example, um, the anti-draft issue, which we think of as something again that the students are being motivated by. But it actually begins, as far as I can tell, uh, at the University of Chicago, where, um, and it begins because faculty, um, this is the uh, end of 1965, early. uh, But as the military is sending more and more uh, men to Vietnam, they are increasing their draft calls. And all of a sudden, they realize that they don't have enough regular uh, draftees, and they want to start drafting college students who, up until then, had been exempt from the draft. They had a what was called a 2S uh, deferment. They didn't have; to, they uh, were exempted uh, from having to serve in the military, and. Um, What happened was they decided the uh, selective service system, the, the people who were running the draft, decided that, well, they would qualify that 2S exemption and draft the students who were in the bottom quarter of their class. I forget what the figure was. So all of a sudden, it's hitting students, and hitting students uh, all across the country.
0: Wait, if you were getting bad grades, they were going to
2: send you to war. Yep. Oh my God. <laughs> and um, they would. And if you flunked out, you would be sent to war. And many professors at that time, especially ones who were opposed to the draft, would they call the uh, their grading system? You know, A, B, C, D, and Vietnam. Oh God. Uh, So a lot of professors just stopped flunking students, male students. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course. Yeah. That's Um, scary. I never knew that. No. No, who knew? I didn't know a lot of this. And a group of faculty members, beginning at Chicago, but elsewhere, students, it was, and students were protesting against what they Uh, called the rank list system. In other words, if you were ranked below a certain percentile of your uh, class, you were eligible for the draft. And so the first student sit-in against the Vietnam War took place at Chicago uh, against this rank list system. And this is um, something that uh, we don't know about. You know i have a whole chapter on it but um you so we it.
1: can know about it
2: and <laughs> natalie
1: is a
0: one of her favorite areas of history is chicago history because she grew up just outside of it so i sense a uh, a new podcast topic coming up soon
1: <laughs> you, you might going? i honestly we several uh <laughs> you've been you've been a wealth of of new information and and context for us, and then also, as is the case with every great topic and guest that we've had on this podcast, a wealth of like little little notes going off in my head, being like, mm, maybe maybe look into this a little bit more, Natalie, of building my list. Sure, I can
2: I can give you lots of names. You want to do Chicago during the Vietnam War? Oh my gosh, yes! Give us all the names. <laughs> There's a, a former Chicago professor named Richard Flax, F-L-A-C-K-S, uh, who was very active during the uh, 60s and actually wrote a book, wrote a memoir that you could look at. Ah, oh, yes, 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 yes.
1: Uh, I'm, I, I... Would recommend anyone who has heard anything that Ellen has talked about that your brain's gone, I'm sorry, what now? Like she just said, there's a chapter about it in her book, which you can get where books are sold. This is me saying to you, Internet and listeners, maybe don't buy things on Amazon.
2: Let's <laughs> it, try not to. Uh, Actually, my book was published by... None other University, than- of University of Chicago Press. Press. Chicago Press, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so there's all I'm gonna. Oh, I want to go read your book just for that chapter alone. Let alone all the other tasty nuggets that we've learned. Ellen, are you on social media? Do you want to tell any people where they can follow you, or do you not really? Do you, I, do you not waste your time? <laughs> to
2: be on social media, I uh, think I have a Twitter, but I, I, you know. It's a generational thing. I didn't grow up with it. I don't really do Facebook and Twitter, but I should.
1: I mean, I'll bring it back to uh, a recent topic of our podcast, which was uh, just the history of Betty White. And Betty White on SNL saying the best thing of I didn't. I'm so thankful to, to everyone on Facebook for this petition to get me on SNL. I didn't know what Facebook was until now. And now that I know about it, I think it's a huge waste of time. <laughs> um, and I think we can all agree with that. Yeah. But you can you can find uh, the lost promise, wherever you get books, any parting words of wisdom, Ellen for for our, our audience.
2: Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to uh, be, just floviate, I think is the appropriate word, about these things that I've done that I found really interesting and that I think are important. We do have to know about our past, and I'm going to make a little political pitch, Um, there is a... Dreadful uh, campaign out there funded by uh, very wealthy business uh, interests, especially the Koch family foundations and groups like that, that have been over the years since um, 1971. In fact, we have a day when Lewis Powell wrote his infamous memo, have been attacking higher education and education in general, trying to uh, create a false narrative about American history and a false narrative about higher education, and are at this moment uh, pushing legislation at the state level against the teaching of um, America's true past and all of the problems that uh, still remain, that were uh, so repressive in the past and have not been dealt with in the present. So I urge all of your listeners to uh, fight as best you can against these kinds of measures. Go to local school board meetings, sign petitions, uh, and if you're an academic, uh, uh, contact me. (laughs) <laughs> or go go to the website of a group called the African American Policy Forum and click on their truth be told. Uh, we'll,
1: we'll drop a link in the show notes for everybody. Nice. Because we also now know how to make hyperlinks. <laughs> <laughs> it's something we've all learned together. Uh, if you want to contact Ellen about this, you can go to her website, ellenschrecker.com. That's Ellen with two L's and Schrecker is S-C-H-R-E-C-K-E-R.com. We'll have a link to that below as well. I had something else I wanted to say, but now we'll have to have you back to talk about McCarthyism because that entire era of of American history also fascinates me. Weird that I'm only into the Cold War assassinations and Watergate, those (laughs) areas of American history that I find interesting. Um, it's been an absolute delight, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, it's I, been a pleasure for me. I, uh,
1: I'm gonna go buy your book because I have a, <laughs> I have a problem, and that problem is reading everything that is recommended to me, <laughs> uh, and especially anything published by our esteemed guests. If you have any questions, corrections, or suggestions for us, you can email those to us at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And Cass, where can they follow us on the huge waste of time that is social media?
0: Uh, You can follow us at sharedpod on all the socials. Uh,
1: We have a website now, which is Natalie. com. Yeah, you'll find uh, so more more detailed sources on uh, from all of our past episodes on there. We're working on getting those transcriptions of past episodes up as well, because accessibility is very important to us, but also very time consuming and <laughs> expensive to do. And we apologize, but we're working on it. It is it is a priority. Until next time, though, friends. Share yeah. your life.
0: Broadsheet
2: Radio.